Hey everyone, this is Ted O'Connell. Thank you for checking out the Med Prep to Go USMLE Step 3 podcast sample episodes. If you find that this audio content brings value to your studies, we encourage you to go to medpreptogo.com and check out the subscription podcast. You'll be able to see the entire content outline Dr. Raj Dasgupta and I put together, and you can subscribe if it looks like the audio content will help you succeed on USMLE Step 3. The podcast is completely ad-free and includes over 50 hours of high-yield material for the USMLE Step 3 exam. If you found this Step 3 podcast, there's a good chance you've listened to the Crush Step 1 or the USMLE Step 2 Secrets podcasts, you've used our free question bank, or you've listened to Dr. Raj's Beyond the Pearls podcast. We hope that whatever you've used in the past has helped you with your studies. As you may know, the goals of MedPrep to Go are to allow you to study on the go to get time back in your day and also to help cut the costs of medical education. We think we've priced the Step 3 podcast very competitively to bring you a great product while allowing us to cover the costs of putting this together and keep it hosted without ads. So thank you for checking this out and for your ongoing engagement with our content. All right, everyone. So let's go through our outline together. We actually went through the whole left column. So what do you have now? You have all the weapons. The weapons to conquer what? The clinical questions that are going to ask on the board exams. So because this is going to be a high-yield lecture, we're going to be talking about acute coronary syndrome, stable angina, CHF, which is going to be all-encompassing, and valvular heart diseases. And this is going to be greater than 90% of the questions they're gonna ask you of the clinical management of heart disease. So uh, let me go to the next slide and I gotta warn you, it is a busy slide. So I don't wanna hear you moaning and groaning when you see the slide. I heard that, okay. So anyways, so when we talk about chest pain, which is the most common question, I put chest pain really into five different categories. You only see three here, but I actually talked about them already. So let's start off with the five categories. The first category, which we did, which we talked about already, but it's not up on the slide, is people who come in with non-cardiac chest pain. And we talked about that. When someone comes in with non-cardiac chest pain, we talked about getting the history and physical examination. We talked about characterizing the pain. Is the pain gonna be pleuritic? And what is my differential diagnosis that starts with the letter P, pleural effusion, pericarditis, pneumonia, pneumothorax, pulmonary embolism. Is the pain reproducible? We talked about costochondritis. We talked about non-cardiovascular etiologies of the pain, such as gastroesophageal reflux. And because it's chest pain, you're always gonna get an EKG. You're always gonna check troponins. And if it's gonna be non-cardiac, well, all those will be normal. So. What did we say in these individuals where you don't know what the chest pain is, the question becomes, are you sure it's not going to be the heart? And the only way to make sure it's not the heart is to do a what? Stress test. So did we talk about stress testing already? The answer is yes. So anytime you get a stress test, the questions are going to be, can you exercise or not? If you can exercise, exercise stress test. 
Can you reach your predicted heart rate max? Sure, what is it? 220 minus your age, 80% of that. And you wanna combine that stress test with something that shows objectively you're having issues, such as an EKG, echo, or perfusion. And the most common pairing on board exams is always gonna be an exercise EKG. So you know what, we did talk about it. You know, on the complete opposite side, another category that's not up on my slide, are people who present with cardiogenic shock. And did we talk about that already? The answer is yes. We talked about the parameters, how someone will come in with a low cardiac output, a high pulmonary capillary wedge pressure, a high SVR, and they'll have a very low central venous saturation. And once again, we said that is gonna represent oxygen delivery as well as oxygen consumption. And I'll say one more thing just to add on, just in case if you, you missed it the first time, when we talk about cardiogenic shock, remember, we're gonna do simple things first. We're gonna give IV fluids. Then we're gonna be talking about giving um, pressors. We're gonna talk about contractility agents. And after you do medical management, then and only then do we think about being invasive. And when we talk about invasive things, we could talk about left ventricular assist devices. And those are things that we use in cardiogenic shock after we do medical management first. So, and you guys aren't seeing things. That was an individual that walked behind me. That was my partner. So anyways, um, she's one of the, the uh, critical care doctors here at USC. So, back to focusing on chest pain. Uh, so let's talk about what's right in front of us. So when we talk about chest pain, the three categories I have in front of you are, does the patient have stable angina? Is it going to be the acute coronary syndrome? Or is it going to be that non-cardiac uh, that we talked about uh, initially? So these are going to be some of the main things that we're going to be talking about. So when we talk about chest pain, notice that all the arrows lead to this one purple box. And what does that purple box say? EKG. So anytime you say chest pain on the board exams or in the hospital, you're gonna get an EKG first. It really dictates where you go here. And then what did I put right below it? I put plus troponins. I used to say cardiac markers, but you know what? Let's be honest the one cardiac marker that we know in the year 2020 that you need is going to be troponins. So you say chest pain, it's going to be EKGs and troponins no matter where you go in this diagram. So let's talk about the one we mentioned already. Once if it's going to be non-cardiac. I mentioned already the history of physical examination. And I said these are the individuals that probably need some kind of stress testing. And I said, if you want to do an exercise, always remember the heart rate max, 220 minus the age, you know, and we already talked about whether you have exercise or chemical, you need to combine it with EKG, echo, or nuclear. So now we can actually really focus on the opposite side, which is going to be stable angina. So as I mentioned earlier, what's going to be the clinical vignette of someone who comes in with stable angina? Well, first off, you need to have a history of what? coronary artery disease. If you don't have that history, then it's not stable in China. You come in with chest pain with no history of coronary disease, it's going to be here, acute coronary syndrome. So the vignette is always going to be 
someone who's older in age, most likely male or female. Remember, females get underdiagnosed with cardiovascular disease. And, you know, they say, I walk the same amount of blocks. I walk up the same amount of stairs, take the same amount of nitro, and I get chest pain. But then, you know, why did they go to the ER to begin with? Probably because a loved one was concerned. And we said that, hey, after the whole workup, you know, the EKG is negative because if it was positive, where would you be? Acute coronary syndrome. After troponins came back negative, they had to be because if they were positive, where would you be? Acute coronary syndrome. Well, the next question becomes, what is the next best step in the management of a patient with stable angina that still has chest pain when exerting themselves? And I asked a question a couple of lectures ago, would it be a stress test? The answer is, no, because it will always be positive. It doesn't really change what you know. Would it be immediately going to the cath lab? Well, you could. And I said that many cardiologists believe that if you have chest pain, that means it's time to go to the cath lab. But on a board exams, if they want something objective, you would order a viability study. And we spoke about a viability study when we went over some of the uh, imaging that you can do in regards to cardiovascular disease. And I said a viability study looks and smells just like a nuclear study. And basically you give a tracer and you see if it's taken up by the myocardium. And the whole concept is that you want to put the myocardium in one of two categories. Is it going to be dead, hence the word necrotic, or is it alive? And we could use words such as a hibernating myocardium, like a hibernating bear, or it could be stunned. What's the difference between hibernating and stunned? Duration of time. Hibernating means it's been kind of sleeping for a while. A stunned myocardium can be a little more acute. And the purpose is, is that if you find out that the myocardium is non-viable, then you know what? There's no purpose in pursuing reperfusion. If you're not gonna pursue reperfusion, then what is the next best step in management? The answer is medical. If there is uh, a viable uh, myocardium, then you want to reperfuse and we'll talk about that. So once again, I put a little asterisk down there. It's, it's very small, but many cardiologists believe that just by having chest pain, it means that you have some viable myocytes. So they don't believe clinically in the viability study. But this is the answer if the boards ask for an objective study to determine if the myocardium is viable or not. So when we talk about necrotic and we said it's going to be medical management, well, what does that mean? Well, number one, you got to look at their risk factors. And what did we say? That risk factors could be in two broad categories, which are modifiable and non-modifiable. And which ones are we going to focus on? We're going to focus on the modifiable risk factors. Those are going to be their weight. That's going to be, are they exercising? That's going to be their diet. But where are all the questions going to come from? It's going to be, what is their hemoglobin A1C if they're diabetic? Are they on the right drugs? What is their lipid panel? What is their LDL? Are they going to be on a statin? Did they reach their goal? Should I answer, should I add ezetimibe to my statin? Or maybe a PCSK9 inhibitor? So there are so many things that we talked about already, but you want to address all the modifiable risk factors. And of course, I forgot to mention high blood pressure. So all those things are going to be in there. And then 
I want to say that when we talk about medical management, after you address all the modifiable risk factors, and hopefully there will be at goal, that are there any other medications that got FDA approval for stable angina to help out with symptoms after you maximized current medical management? The answer is yes. And I can think of one drug that you could use to help out with the symptoms of chest pain that's FDA approved for people with stable angina. And the name of that drug is, that's right. It's called ranolazine. And it goes by the brand name Renexa. So when we talk about ranolazine, I think personally it's a great drug, not just for board exams, but because, you know, having people go to surgery, having people do cabbage if they're candidates, you know, it's, it's scary. You know, and if there's a medication that could just make people feel better and walk longer, then I'm kind of on board with that. So think about under medical management, think about Renexa. And there are people with stable angina that it's just hard to control the heart rate. And we know these patients need to be on beta blockers, but despite maximizing a beta blocker, they may be getting side effects of the beta blocker, but they can't reach their heart rate goal. Is there an FDA-approved medication for stable angina that controls the heart rate if it's already maximized with the beta blocker? The answer is yes. And what is the name of that drug? Ivabradine. And when we talk about Ivabradine, it you, works in a very unique way. It's a funny sodium channel inhibitor. Yes, I said the word funny. Remember these funny sodium channels? I, I hate that name. Why? Because they're really not what? Funny to begin with. But yes, it blocks it. And so I definitely would know these two medications in regards to what? Medical management for a necrotic myocardium under the category of what? Stable angina. So once we find out that the myocardium is viable, so what is the next best step in the evaluation of this patient? What we need to do is get an angiogram. So it's not gonna be stenting just yet. You wanna get the angiogram, at least in the board question. Why? Because <clears throat> you wanna put um, the findings of the angiogram into two broad categories. On one side, if you shoot the dye in the cath lab and it shows that the patient has triple vessel disease, or if the patient has left main disease, or if the patient has two vessel disease, plus the history of diabetes, well, what is the next best thing to offer these patients? The answer is cabbage. I'm not referring to the vegetable. I'm talking about coronary artery bypass grafting. And when you offer cabbage to these patients, a couple things. Number one, uh, will they agree to the cabbage? The answer is probably not. You know, these are patients who are 80 years of age. You want to crack their chest open. Hey, you know, it sounds great on a, on a piece of paper, a board question, but not in reality. But they, you do offer it. And in these patients over here, if you offer cabbage, are you, if they accept it, does that improve survival? And the answer is, yeah, it does. The data here states that if you offer cabbage in people who have triple vessel disease, left main, or two vessel plus history of diabetes, they will get the mortality benefit if they decide to do cabbage. Now, 
if you decide to do cabbage, you know board exams, when you read the vignettes, they'll kind of say things that will throw you off your game. So they may say patients offered on pump cabbage, patients offered off pump cabbage, and what you'll do is focus on those words and get panicked. So what does it mean to be on pump or off pump? We're talking about the bypass machine, you know what I mean? So what happens is most of our traditional cabbage is done what? On pump. That means is that the heart is stopped and we bypass the blood to a machine that oxygenates it and sends it back to the body. That's going to be on pump. That's the most traditional way we do it. But when you elect to have cabbage, are there side effects from the procedure as a whole? The answer is, of course there is, you know? Um, one of the common side effects is what? Up here, mental status. That, you know, when you do cabbage and they stop the heart, that means that you have to clamp the aorta, clamp the great vessels, and there's gonna be no flow air to the brain. And that's why when patients come back from the OR, what are we always asking? What was the on-pump time? What was the cross-clamp time? You need to know these things because the longer it is, the decreased perfusion going to the brain. So that's why we always talk about that mental status. And that's why there was an idea to do something called off-pump. What does that mean is that some CT surgeons are so amazing, they could do it on a beating heart, go figure. You know what I mean? It's going to be off the pump. You know what I mean? But they did studies comparing on-pump and off-pump in regards to morbidity and mortality, all the different endpoints. And the truth is, there really is what? No difference. There really is no difference. So don't be thrown off if you see the words on or off pump. Also, what I'll mention down there is when we do cabbage, you know that, you know, it, we could use either a vein or an artery when we talk about the bypass. And truth be told, you are not going to make that decision. But don't be thrown off if they mention the vessel in the vignette. And basically, there are two vessels. There's the vein. And what is the most common vein that we use when we offer cabbage? And that's right, the saphenous vein, the great saphenous vein. And it's nice to use. Why? Because, you know, when the cardiovascular team is, you know, working on the heart, you usually have a harvesting team working on the lower extremities to get the vein. Um, it could be also an artery. And the most common artery is a what? A lima. And in broad strokes, if they were to ask, what do we offer when it's going to be vein or artery? That really depends on, well, how old is the patient? So, you know, if the patient's going to be on the younger side, we tend to give arterial grafts. If the patient's going to be in the older side, which is mostly everyone, we use what? Venous grafts, because supposedly arterial grafts last a little bit longer. I agree. So that's going down the triple vessel left main, two vessel plus diabetes pathway. If you see anything else, anything else when you shoot the angiogram, what is gonna be the answer? Stent. And when we talk about stenting, what did I say? What are the two uh, main types of stents? It's either gonna be a bare metal stent or it's gonna be a what? A drug eluding stent, drug eluding stent. And I mentioned that uh, the most common stent we're going to throw on the board exams is probably going to be a drug-eluting stent. And there are some very specific guidelines because I said in regards to dual antiplatelet therapy, it really depends if it's going to be an acute coronary syndrome leading to here or if it's going to be stable angina 
leading to here. And we'll talk about that in one of my questions coming up. When we talk about stenting for stable angina, let me ask you a question. If you pop a stent for stable angina, does that improve mortality? Does that improve survival? And the answer is? No, it doesn't. You know, the only thing that improves survival is gonna be what? Cabbage. But if you pop the stent, it's definitely gonna make him feel better. And that's gonna be just as important. It's gonna be just as important. And that's why we go through the study like this. So now let's talk about the most important, which is always gonna be what happens if you have the acute coronary syndrome? Someone comes in with chest pain, what are you always gonna order? EKG plus what? Troponins. And when we talk about the acute coronary syndrome, you know, that's gonna be subdivided into three main categories. We're gonna call those STEMI, NSTEMI, and unstable angina. And I'm happy if you wanna take a pen and circle unstable angina and NSTEMI together. Many people do it. Many boards say UA slash NSTEMI. So before we go into that, let me say a couple things. So when we talk about a STEMI, there are different names for a STEMI on the boards. You know, historically we call these Q-wave MIs. Another word would be, it could be a transmural MI. All those mean STEMI. N-STEMI could be a non-Q-wave MI. Or another name could be a subendocardial MI. All these mean what? The same thing. And also, before I forget, you know what I mean? What do I want you to write right underneath acute coronary syndrome? I want you to write down three categories of drugs. Beta blocker, statin, and ACE inhibitors. Beta blocker, statin, and ACE inhibitors. And why did I want to put this on the bottom right here? Is because when we talk about acute coronary syndrome, any one of these, do beta blockers, statins, and ACE inhibitors do they reduce mortality in ACS? The answer is yes. But when we put ACE inhibitors, let me just say one thing. Most of the data for ACE inhibitors reducing mortalities are for what? STEMI. Not as strong for using them in unstable in China and in STEMI. But let's go back to the top. Chest pain, EKG troponins, Depending on what the EKG shows and your opponent shows, they'll be under ACS. Now, before we go under any of these over here, they always say that when someone presents with ACS, there's this certain uh, mnemonic that greets patients at the door. And this mnemonic is called MONA, you know what I mean? So when we think about MONA, what does uh, MONA stand for? M4, morphine. O4 oxygen, N4 nitrates, and A for aspirin. And you know, I think it's very cute. Mona greets you at the door. That's so sweet. You know what I mean? But I got to tell you, I'm not a big fan. Don't really like Mona too much because when you break down Mona, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. So let's kind of talk about this uh, before we continue on. So when we talk about the M and the N for Mona, that's morphine and nitrates. 
which patients with ACS probably should not get morphine and nitrates? Yeah, patients who have a low what? Blood pressure. And when we talk about why, it's because you know that nitrates and morphine, they will lower the blood pressure even more. So if you were to get an MI or infarct to the heart, what part of the heart will usually be involved? Yeah, the right ventricle. So if you are, are having low blood pressure and you suspect that there is a right ventricular infarction, well, how are you gonna do your EKG? That's right, you're gonna get right-sided leads. So normally when you put an EKG, the precordial leads go here around the heart, on the left, V1 to V6. But if you do right-sided leads, you're just gonna put them this way. So you're gonna have right-sided precordial leads. So low blood pressure, think about getting right-sided leads, think about a right-sided MI, right ventricular infarction. These patients will not benefit from M, morphine or N nitrates in these patients. But what were we taught? Give Mona to who? Everyone. So when we talk about um, the O, what does Mona say to do? Anyone that comes in with ACS, just give them oxygen. Is that the case? The answer is no. Is there data out there that states that if you give oxygen to patients who don't need it with ACS, that it might increase mortality? The answer is yes. And that makes a lot of conceptual sense to me because if you have a myocardial infarction, that has nothing to do with oxygen diffusion, maybe oxygen delivery, but not diffusion. So by giving supplemental oxygen in these cases, in patients who don't need it, it may increase mortality. People are asking, well, how did that happen? Well, imagine that there's an area around the infarction called the, the penumbra. We usually use that terminology penumbra when we talk about strokes, but this area, the penumbra in the heart, if you give excess oxygen, you get free radicals and that will cause damage. So according to the American Heart Association, do they have a cutoff about when we give oxygen? The answer is yes. Usually if the oxygen saturation is down in the 90, maybe 92, 90, 92%, then you wanna give oxygen. Rule of thumb across the board for oxygen is if you're not hypoxic, don't give oxygen, you know? But of course, Mona tells you to give it to everyone. What does the A stand for? Aspirin. And so in the United States of America, in the year 2020, if you come in with acute coronary syndrome, how many antiplatelet medications am I gonna give you upfront? And the answer is two. And what do we usually use? Aspirin plus a P2Y12 inhibitor. Did we talk about those already? The answer is yes. It's either gonna be T4, clopidogrel, T4, tigrelor, P4, pasigrel. And we mentioned about your default answer on the board exams is always gonna be clopidogrel, whether they stent or medical. Tigrelor, very expensive. You can use stent or medical. Pasigrel, we only use for what? Stenting. And when do we not use pasigrel? If you had a stroke. But Mona tells you just to give everyone what? Aspirin. So the reason why they said it in the past is because they were always afraid about, well, once they need to have cabbage right away and you put them on clopidogrel. But let's be honest, 
do most people that come with ACS get shipped off the cabbage right away? The answer is no. And even if they were, if they were on, you know, a, a clopidogrel, could we just give playlists if they really needed it? The answer is maybe. So standard of care, ACS is two antiplatelets up front. My default choice is always aspirin plus clopidogrel. So why did we go through that is because when they ask you questions about chest pain, acute coronary syndrome, remember they're never gonna micromanage. They're never gonna say, are you gonna give the morphine one second before the aspirin or two seconds before the clopidogrel or one minute before the statin? The answer is, that's not a good question because you know you're gonna give them all what? Upfront. So anytime they ask you a question on the board exams, they're gonna assume that some form of MONA the things that we talked about are going to be given. And if they're candidates for it, they should be on beta blockers, stands, and ACE inhibitors. And what do I mean by candidates? Well, if someone comes in and they're profoundly bradycardic, is that going to be the best time to beta block? No. If someone comes in in acute renal failure, is that a great time to give the ACE inhibitor? No. If someone just has shocked liver with transaminitis, is that the best time to start a statin? The answer is no. But if they have no contraindications, they should be on what? All three plus some form of MONA. Once all these are given, which is assumed, or in the vignette, then they'll ask you the finer points of management that separate STEMI from NSTEMI from unstable angina. So now that we have all that, let's play the game. So someone comes in with chest pain. What do you do? EKG. What does it show to be a STEMI? ST what? Elevation. That's all you need is that ST elevation. Boom, you're in STEMI. Other words, it's going to be a Q-wave MI or a transmural MI. And what is the next best step in management of this patient after some form of MONA and all these three drugs are started? The answer is revascularize. So... Why am I being so broad is because what are the two ways you could revascularize? You can do it through stenting. And did we talk about stenting? The answer is yes. Or you could use what? Lytics, thrombolytics. So in the United States, you know, and of course someone's gonna bring this up. Are we talking about COVID times or non-COVID times? So we're gonna assume for right now non-COVID times that what is the standard of care in the United States if someone presents with ACS, it's gonna be stenting. It's gonna be stenting. So yes, I'm aware that lytics are given by every single hospital there, but in the United States, when you call paramedics, EMS for a heart attack, they are obligated to bring you to a cath lab that has what? Stenting capabilities. Of course, there are finer points in the middle of nowhere. This doesn't make a lot of sense. Like, I don't want to give any states because then I'll be a bad person. But yes, stenting is a standard of care. So why did I make that statement about COVID-19? Is because the American Heart Association uh, recently, because this is COVID times, if you're watching this video, uh, put out a statement that if someone comes in with ACS, they prefer doing lytics because the it's less chance of exposing people to uh, the virus. Now, that was a very, very strong statement. Things are definitely gonna be changing all the time. So it really depends on when you watch this video.
But that statement was made during the COVID outbreak. So, but stenting is a standard of care. And did we talk about stenting? The answer is yes. So what do you do? You go down here. Do, 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 do. Here's going to be the stent. And what are my choices of stenting? It's going to be a bare metal stent or drug eluding. And which one are you going to pick? Drug eluding stent. And now there's no ifs, ands, or buts. You're going to be on dual antiplatelet therapy. And how long do you have to be on dual antiplatelet therapy for? A minimum of, boom, one year. So dual antiplatelet for a minimum of one year for what? ACS. Now, if they can't get stented, and there's always going to be reasons why we can't stent, then you need to do what? Lytics. And when we talk about the lytics, I do want you to realize that what are the relative and absolute contraindications for lytics? So in many board review books, they have all the lists of, you know, why you can and cannot give a lytic. And it behooves you to know these because if you have these relative and absolute contraindications, they need what? Stent. And let me ask you this. Let's say you decide to give a lytic first. And of course, I mean, you don't need to memorize all the lytics and they're not going to give you that, well, with that lytic streptokinase on the board exams. I mean, it's pretty much going to be TPA. Let's say you gave a lytic and the patient is, sti um, is still having some chest pain or discomfort. Are you able to, are you allowed to pop a stent after you push the thrombolytic? And the answer is yes. We call that what? Salvage therapy. So, and that's why if for some of you who are gonna be working in the middle of nowhere and someone comes into a hospital with ACS and you push the lytic, what is the next best thing to do with that patient? Say it, transfer. You need to transfer these patients to a bigger hospital that has cath lab capabilities. Do not keep that patient at your hospital. And we do this all the time, popping stent after popping, after pushing lytics. So this is gonna be what happens when you have a STEMI. Positive EKG, some form of Mona, these three drugs right here, you need to revascularize as quickly, quickly as possible. That could happen either by stenting or by giving lytics. Now, let's go over here onto unstable angina. So chest pain, what is the EKG gonna to show to put you in unstable angina? That's right, ST, depression. Some form of Mona will greet the patient. These three drugs will be evaluated. After both these things are given, what is the next best treatment for someone with unstable angina? The answer is anticoagulate. With what? Heparin. So these patients are definitely going to get heparin. And heparin comes in two main flavors, which are unfractionated heparin, given as a continuous drip following the PTT, the intrinsic pathway, or low molecular weight heparin. And remember, how do you choose between each one? Well, really, do they have renal failure or not? If they have a lot of renal failure, then not going to be low molecular weight. And were there studies comparing unfractionated to low molecular weight heparin in the setting of unstable angina and STEMI? The answer is yes. And which one turned out to be better? Low molecular weight. I believe it was called the ESSENCE trial. And I think the main reason why it's better is because you don't have to monitor anything. You just give a dose and boom, you're anticoagulated. That's why we love low molecular weight heparin so much with 
DBTs and PEs. So you give a heparin product. Then in all patients that come in with unstable angina and NSTEMI, what must be calculated in all patients? You got it, it's right here, the TIMI risk score. And or you could calculate the GRACE score. The easier one of the two is a TIMI risk score. Um, that's what I've seen mo mainly on the board exams, but they can mention the word GRACE score. TIMI risk score is from zero to seven. And they ask questions about family history, what did the EKG show, what were the troponins, did you take aspirin, all these things are factored together. And the higher the score it is, the worse outcome you may have in regards to cardiovascular mortality. So if you calculate the TIMI risk score and it's high, well, what makes it high? Definitely probably around two or more would be high, you know, two or three or more would be high. So in those individuals, what would be the next best treatment in the management of these patients? Well, a high score goes where? You go to the cath lab. And on the way to the cath lab, that's where it gets a little tricky. So in the olden days, and it wasn't that long ago, I used to teach people that if you're going to the cath lab because of a high TIMI risk score, because of unstable NSTEMI, you should start a 2B3A inhibitor. But we know now that 2B3A inhibitors are seldomly used. So how would you know how to answer it for the board exams? The reason why they're seldomly used is because now we give how many antiplatelets up front? Two. So if someone comes in on the boards and they're already on two antiplatelets, which they should be, aspirin plus one of these three, then we do not use a 2B3A inhibitor. If they're only on aspirin, then it would be reasonable to consider adding a 2B3A inhibitor. Now, notice that it says, or bilivirudin. So in the olden days, I hate saying that, bilivirudin is a very short-acting IV direct thrombin inhibitor. There was data, Bilirudin goes by the brand name Angiomax. There was data to show that if you did not want to use a 2B3 inhibitor combined with heparin, an alternative to that would be bilivirudin. But nowadays, because we don't really use 2B3 inhibitors anymore, we're not really using bilivirudin, so these categories of drugs are kind of fading away because we have such good antiplatelet drugs up front. I wanted to mention that. But when you go to the cath lab, what are you gonna do? Well, you're actually going to shoot the dye and then you're probably gonna stent. And when you stent, well, you're gonna see if it's gonna be a bare metal stent you're gonna put in or a drug eluding stent. And which one is most likely to be the answer? Drug eluding. And because it's under the category of ACS, they're going to be on dual antiplatelet therapy for how long? Minimum of one year. Outstanding. Now, once if we go way back here and the TIMI risk score is low, how low? Probably less than two. Then you're not done yet. What do these patients need before discharge? A submaximal stress test. So we'll do a submaximal stress test, and if the results are positive, well, you know where they go? The cath lab. And they go to the cath lab to get a what? Stent. Which one? Drug eluding. Do antiplatelet therapy for how long? Minimum of one year. And if the submaximal stress test is negative, well, what do you have to do? 
medical management and they're ready to get discharged. And when we talk about medical management, they're gonna be on what? Beta blockers, statins, ACE inhibitors, some form of MONA, and you're gonna maximize risk factors, diabetes, hyperlipidemia, and hypertension. So what did I leave last is the NSTEMI. And you know why? Is because we really treat NSTEMI just like we treat what? Unstable in China. But how do you define an NSTEMI? How do you diagnose it? Well, you say chest pain, we're gonna get a what? EKG. And what would the EKG show in an NSTEMI? Most likely nothing. Because over here, unstable would be ST depression. STEMI is ST elevation. How do you make the diagnosis of the NSTEMI? What does it say right below it? Cardiac markers. And even though there are historically a lot of cardiac markers, there's of course troponin, CKMB, myoglobin that's supposedly, that raises up the fastest. There's non-specific markers like LDH, AST. Really, it comes down to one thing, troponin. And once you make that diagnosis because the cardiac marker is increased, you treat as unstable in China, so these patients need to be on what? Heparin. What are you gonna calculate? Timmy risk and or GRACE score. If it's high, where are they going? Cath lab. So it's the same thing over and over again. So my advice is just the way I want it out with you, you know, take a blank piece of paper, draw out the three categories. There are here, I mentioned there were five. And the last category, if you didn't catch it, is actually other. You know what I mean? There's always gonna be a category called other in any chart. And what are gonna be some other ideologies of chest pain that are kind of deals with the heart, you know what I mean? But a little different. Two of them jump to, jump to mind. One is something called variant angina. What's another name for variant angina? It's called prinzmental angina. These patients could have positive EKG, positive uh, troponins. They go to the cath lab. You know what, they shoot the die. What do they see? Nothing. How do you make the diagnosis? You're gonna give some vasospastic agent and you see the vasospasm, there you go. Variant in China. How do we treat those? Antispasmodic drugs such as what? Calcium channel blockers and nitrates. And the other one that goes under that category of other is something called microvascular angina. What's another name for microvascular angina? Some of you folks call this cardiac syndrome X. Sounds pretty cool. But how do they present? Chest pain, positive EKG, positive troponins. You go to the cath lab, you shoot the die, you see what? Nothing. You give a vasospastic agent, what do you get? Nothing. So the point is that these people are going to have disease that's very, very, very what? Distal. You know you can't stent those or see those. So how do you manage those patients? You treat the risk factors the diabetes, the high blood pressure, the hyperlipidemia. And what is what we were trying to work on by making a diagnosis? I think there's being a growing role for an MRI. We talked about MRIs. We talked about MRIs and stress tests. Maybe that might be the combination to help diagnose this microvascular in China. So I'm going to say this is that, wow, I mean, time just really flew going over this chart. Um, I do have some questions. Oh boy, my, my chest hurts when I walk up the stairs. But let's take a breath, give you a chance to tidy up your notes a little bit. We'll be back in a few minutes and we'll start doing questions on stable angina and ACS.
All right, we just finished this mega chart, so let's do some questions. Um, Chief Complaint, my chest hurts when I walk upstairs. All right, where is this going? Um, 62-year-old man with hypertension comes to the emergency department with a pressure-like retrosternal pain that radiates to his neck and down his left arm after climbing two flights of stairs. Okay, this sounds definitely like ACS. Uh, let's keep on going. The pain occurred earlier today, lasted about 10 minutes, and was relieved by rest. All right. Um, this states that this happens to him, oh, every time he climbs one or two flights of stairs. Um, sounds like stable in China. I hope there is some kind of history of coronary artery disease so I could slam that diagnosis. But yeah, this is now kind of sounding like this is kind of a recurrent thing that has happened. He takes a tenolol beta blocker regularly and carries sublingual nitro, which probably means he has a history of what? Coronary artery disease uh, for when he has occasional episodes of angina. So he knows he has coronary artery disease. He usually takes two tabs as needed and the episodes last for five to 10 minutes. He currently has no pain. Oh, and this is probably why he went to the ER. Because remember the question is, why did you go to the ER? His wife insisted he go to the emergency department. Okay. Um, they do vitals. That's great. Um, nothing that really jumps out at me. An S4, probably that is a late diastolic murmur, probably from having high blood pressure or maybe even a previous MI. Um, what a surprise. They do an EKG first. And I am kind of whipping through this because of the fact that I want to really show you one or two drugs from this vignette. Um, and of course, the EKG shows what? No acute changes. This is gonna be what? Stable angina. And the reason why I put this here is because this is the medication I was referring to. It's called renolazine, Renexa. And it got FDA approval for chronic angina in 2006. So we're talking almost 14 years ago. Definitely gonna be on your board exams. It doesn't change, this drug does not change the heart rate or blood pressure. I think this is great for patients who do not want invasive intervention and they're already on maximal doses of anti-anginal medications. This drug decreases the symptoms of angina. It modestly increases exercise time, but I think this is huge. We always tell our patients to exercise. And uh, just be careful that it does uh, interfere with one of the cytochrome P450s, which is the CYP3A. Can you remember that? I, I have a hard time doing that. And if you're on a uh, CYP3A inhibitor, and the one I've seen on the board exams is doltiazem, then you should adjust the dosage. And why did they mention doltiazems? Remember, calcium channel blockers are antispasmodic. So when you have prismentals angina, or even sometimes when people just have angina in general, I mean they could put them on a calcium channel blocker because of the antispasmodic effect. So I think that's going to be something where if you have any space in, in your mind, remember this, these last little pearls. Um, what other drug I wanted to talk about? Ah, oh, I made a question out of it. What drug was approved five years ago for symptomatic chronic stable angina um, with normal sinus who can't take the beta blockers who are on beta blockers but not optimally controlled? The answer is Ivabradine. There it is. And I put some of the trials in there, the, the shift trial was for heart failure, but for uh, chronic stable angina, we're gonna talk about the beautiful trial. And remember the big thing with this is that for CHF, for heart disease, 
you really want to control the heart rate. Why? Heart rate is the diastolic interval. You want more time in diastole to fill the heart, have a better preload that improves stroke volume. And remember perfusion of the coronaries. You perfuse the coronaries during what? Diastole, so it's so important. So this works on sodium funny channels. And remember back to step one when we talk about um, whether there are two main cardiac cells, there's gonna be pacemaker and non-pacemaker cells. So these are gonna work on the pacemaker cells, which are gonna be located where? The SA node. And why are these funny channels so important? Because of automaticity, that these uh, cells in the SA node can uh, auto-depolarize. And how does it do it? By starting off with these sodium funny channels. All right, we made a little detour into uh, basic science territory, I apologize. So this is gonna be a key one for the board exams. This patient had what? Stable angina, and I did mention that they have their own uh, guidelines for dual antiplatelet therapy. So let's read it together and I put bolded red there. So in patients with stable angina who undergo stenting, you know, this patient didn't, but if they did, you know, because remember what did we say is that if you have stable angina and they think you have viable myocardium that you undergo angiogram. And if you are someone who had left main, two vessel and diabetes, or uh, three-vessel disease, you go cabbage, but otherwise you stand. And in those people that you should have dual antiplatelet therapy should be continued for at least one month after bare metal stent, which we don't usually do, uh, and six months for drug-eluting stent implantation. So if you only have room for one uh, date in your mind, six months drug-eluting stent six months drug eluding stent, and that's a minimum. Now, you're gonna to talk to a lot of cardiologists in, um, in your hospital, and they're like, screw these rules. I mean, if the patient can tolerate it, I'm going one year, and that's not wrong, you know what I mean? Oh, and I, uh, this is relatively new guideline, and most cardiologists will keep them for 12 months if there's no contraindications. I just like to, it's, it's so hard to teach board stuff. Why? Because there's our clinical opinion, there's evidence-based medicine, there's board knowledge, so I'm trying to give you that nice balance of both to help you out. So a couple more things. There is no role, bolded red, for dual antiplatelet therapy in the medical management of stable angina unless the patient gets a stent. So if there's no stenting, there's zero role for dual antiplatelet therapy. And clopidogrel is the only antiplatelet drug that has been studied in combination with aspirin after revascularization of patients with stable angina. So the role of the newer antiplatelets is unclear. So what did I say? If you get a little panicky, what's always the go-to combo? Aspirin and clopidogrel. So if you, get, if you could remember those, you got all these uh, stable angina questions set aside for the boards. Let's talk about these acute coronary syndromes. 52-year-old woman presents to the ER for ongoing subternal chest pain associated with nausea, diaphoresis, lightheadedness. Her symptoms began three hours ago, and she has hypertension, hyperlipidemia. Her daily meds are hydrochlorothide and pravastatin, and she takes aspirin. On physical exam, her blood pressure is 84 over 62, heart rate of 88, respiratory rate of 20, PMI is 29. Auscultation reveals distant heart sounds with an S4, probably from the hypertension. Uh, the lungs are clear bilaterally. 
they have a central venous line in there. So they, uh, or a central line, they check a CVP. Oh boy, it's 22. That thing is elevated. Uh, the extremities are cool. They do right-sided precordial leads. You know why? Because the blood pressure is low. You're expecting what? A right-sided MI. Let's see what it shows. Oh boy, I'm seeing little ST what? Elevation, right in the inferior part of the heart. This is right ventricle territory right here. This is an MI. Which of the following should be given next in the treatment of this patient? All right, so I'm looking at some choices. All right, so which ones would you probably not want to give right away? Yeah, number one, I'm not feeling the nitro, I'll tell you that much. And I'm not really feeling the beta blocker, even though they do benefit from it. Why am I not feeling B and C? Yeah, isn't like the systolic blood pressure like 80 or something like that? Yeah, I mean, you don't want to do these when someone has low blood pressure. So the question becomes, do you want to give dobutamine to help out with the contractility? Because had an MI, the CVP is 22, you know, probably getting fluid overloaded because the right ventricle is not working. Or do you want to give a fluid bolus? And the answer is, you got to try simple things first. I don't know if I spoke a little bit too fast when we talked about cardiogenic shock, but, you know, you want to give fluids first. And if they don't work, then you want to think about using contractility agents and pressors. So, I don't think she got any fluids. I think one bolus of saline is reasonable first, see what happens, and then go from there. Answer here is going to be what? D. All right. 78-year-old man is evaluated in an urgent care clinic for a new onset of, of chest pain. The pain, which he describes as crushing in the left subternal area, is non-rating and has been present for around 14 hours. He has no prior episodes of similar symptoms. His medical history is notable for hypertension and hyperlipidemia. His meds are aspirin, hydrochlorothiazide, and Lipitor. On exam, systolic is 100, diastolic of 70, heart rate is 100. Respiratory rate is 16. There's no JBD, no murmurs, rub, or gallop. The lungs are clear to auscultation, and there's no peripheral edema. They got some labs. Platelets looks good. CK is elevated. And, of course, the troponin is also elevated. They do an EKG, which they should, and uh-oh, SD elevation, 2-3 AVF, inferior wall MI, with reciprocal changes in the anterior leads. They do a chest x-ray, which is normal. In this patient, which of the following is the best management? So what do you want to do for this patient? So who says, so this is kind of like ACS. STEMI. So what do you want to do in this case? Should we do a CT with contrast? No, nah, we don't need that. We don't need that. Do we need to do an echo? I mean, patients probably going to get an echo, but I don't think that's the next thing we need to do. If you look at my algorithm, I think the next thing for STEMI is to what? Revascularize. And if you want to revascularize, you can do it in two ways. You can do it with what? Lytic, or you can do it with uh, stenting. So, oh, look at the choices, lytic or stent. And what is the right answer in this case? What is going to be the right answer? What is going to be the right answer? Yeah, stent. Why is it going to be stent? Why is it going to be stent? I'm going to go back one because it behooves you to please read the relative and absolute contraindications for what? Lytics. So who could tell me without even looking at the answer? When you want to give a lytic, 
they are the most efficacious within what period of time? How many hours? The answer is 12. This patient is what? 14. So based upon that, this patient is going to get a what? Stent. Answer is going to be C. So let's read this together. Thrombolytic therapy is recommended for patients with ST elevation MI. That's this. When symptom onset is within 12 hours. I put a big 12 with a clock around it. And stenting is not available within two hours of first medical contact. So you got to put that in your mind. I didn't really spit it all out there. But that's going to be important. They talked to door to balloon. So from first medical contact, you get what? Two hours to pop the stent. From first medical contact, that's the ER, two hours to pop the stent. If you can't do that, then you get what? Lytic therapy. All right. 62-year-old woman is brought to the ER by paramedics for chest pain that has been present for five hours. That doesn't sound good. Uh, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, had a stroke of one year ago. Medications, sulfonylurea, ACE inhibitor, statin, aspirin. She appears uncomfortable, of course. Um, she is afebrile. Blood pressure is systolic of 190 over 90. Heart rate is 88. Respiratory rate is 16. Cardiac exam shows no murmur, rubber, gallop. Lungs are clear. Pulses are equal bilaterally. Neuro exam is normal, as you should. EKG, chest pain means EKG. Uh-oh, ST elevation leads to 3 ABF. It's all about that inferior, inferior wall MI, you know. So what is this? ACS is a STEMI. So what should we do with STEMIs? We need to what? Revascularize. What's the question? Oh, a coronary cath lab is not available. I'm sorry. And the nearest hospital with PTCA is one hour away. I don't even know how long she's been in the ER. Um, which of the following is the best management? So we said two hours from first contact. So we could go with that one, you know what I mean? So is it going to be aggressive medical management uh, without reperfusion? That just sounds wrong to begin with because the patient's having a what? Stemming. Should we crack her chest open and do a bypass? That sounds kind of aggressive. So it really comes down to who wants to push the lytic or who wants to transfer per, for percutaneous? The answer, I kind of gave it away. I think I was too chatty with the last question. It's going to be what? You, you got to transfer for the stent over here. Why? For a few reasons. Number one is that you can't give the lytic when someone's blood pressure is what? Close to 200. So it behooves you to, to know what the absolute and relative contraindications are. Maybe if the question said, control the blood pressure first, then a lytic. Maybe if they said that the uh, hospital was more than two hours away, you want to give the lytic, but you know what? It's one hour away. I don't know how long this patient was hanging out in the ER. I mean, maybe if, you know, if, if she had a private jet, they could get her there pretty quick. But regardless, the answer here is going to be uh, stenting. The answer is going to be D. And I definitely would say that things has changed. So before, you know, we wanted to do it less than 90 minutes, but we do know now that the golden time is going to be from first contact, it's going to be 120 minutes. You know, that's where we want to go. And I think your default answer for many board questions in regards to lytic or stent is probably going to be stenting. That's what we do a lot of. Good. And for stroke, 
stroke. What did I do for stroke? Well, if it's a ischemic stroke, if it's more than three months ago, that's fine. Hemorrhagic, you can never push a lytic. You can push a lytic if it's ischemic for more than three months. For hemorrhagic, you can never push a lytic. All right. I think I talked enough on that one. How about this 54-year-old man is evaluated in the ER for an episode of crushing subternal chest pain and discomfort that began 30 minutes ago. All right. He is obese, currently smokes one to two packs of cigarettes daily. He has dyslipidemia. The patient's meds are aspirin and a statin. Okay. On exam, he's a febrile, normal tensive per se, not tacky, not the kimnic. BMI is 32. He's obese. Cardiac exam reveals normal S1 and S2. There's no S3. There is an S4. Longstanding hypertension, previous MI. Uh, there's no murmurs or rubs. The remainder of the exam is normal. Serum troponins are elevated. All right, so he definitely got himself a, an NSTEMI at least. And hematocrit's 42. Uh, platelets are normal. EKG shows consistent findings of an inferior wall MI. Take it back as an MI because the EKG shows it. Portal chest x-ray shows a normal cardiac silhouette, no infiltrates. Patient is treated with aspirin, nitrates, a beta blocker. The hospital does not have the capabilities of performing a PCI, I'm sorry. And the nearest PCI center is more than two hours away. So clearly, you got to push the lytic over here. So what a surprise. They pushed the lytic. Patient got uh, some kind of TPA. Where are we going with this? Ah, which of the following is the most appropriate treatment now? That he got the lytic. What do you want to do? What do you want to do? So when I look at this, what is abscissimab? Abscissimab is a 2B, 3A inhibitor. And what did I say, folks? Are we using lots of this? The answer is no. And we, if we were to use it, we don't use it for ST elevation MI, right? We use them for what? Unstable and STEMI and probably going to the cath lab, you know what I mean? If they're only on a one uh, antiplatelet. Patients on one antiplatelet, but they go to the cath lab. So it's going to be adding another antiplatelet. So the question becomes, what antiplatelet do we add in someone that comes in with ACS that you don't stent? So what did I teach you? If you don't know what to pick, what is your default answer? Clopidogrel B. So let's read the answer. For STEMI patients undergoing stenting, both Passagrel and Tegular have shown to be superior in efficacy compared to clopidogrel if you're stenting. However, these agents with thrombolytic therapy has not been well studied and little evidence exists to recommend their use of these agents after you push a lytic. So the answer is clopidogrel. Uh-oh, this one scares me. It says super bonus. A 72-year-old woman presents to the ER for evaluation of neck and shoulder pain. These symptoms have been present intermittently for two weeks. Oh my God, get evaluated. Uh, occurring with activity, lasting five to 10 minutes, resolving with rest. During these episodes of pain, she notes associated shortness of breath and diaphoresis. She had episodes yesterday and today. Today's episode occurred at rest. This is messed up and has continued for approximately 30 minutes. Oh boy. Medical history significant for hypertension and diabetes. Her sister underwent cabbage at age 62. 
Permits are aspirin, hydrochlorothiazide, and metformin for diabetes. On exam, she's afebrile, normal tensive, non-tacky, non-tachypnic, normal carotid upstroke without carotid breweries is noted. So no findings of aortic stenosis. Normal JVP, normal S1 and S2 are heard without murmurs. Um, lungs are clear, distal pulses are present, no peripheral edema. Okay, great exam. Her troponin bumps, so it's elevated. INR is one, other lab findings are within normal limits. They do an EKG, it shows normal sinus rhythm, isolated PVCs, uh-oh, two millimeter ST segment, what? Depression in the inferior lead. So this is gonna be what? Unstable in China with a splash of what? And STEMI. So this is gonna be unstable in China. Uh, she is given aspirin, unfractionated heparin, because what do we say when you have unstable or unstemmy? You need a what? Anticoagulate. So I'm loving this. You got some beta blocker going. They needed to be on that. I don't see the stat anywhere. It's kind of freaking me out a little bit. Uh, and they gave some sublingual. All right, uh, where are we gonna go with this? Oh, what? I'm loving this. Which of the following is the most appropriate additional drug therapy in this patient? Hmm. I think I talked too much. I shouldn't have mentioned statin. All right. But anyways, is this patient going to need lidocaine? The answer is no. There's no role for giving these lidocaines in these patients. What about a thrombolytic? You know, the answer is no. We only want to do thrombolytics when you want to revascularize. And we only do that when you have what? ST elevation, am I? So it really comes down to A and B. And what is, I hate these words, everyone, eptifibatid. I even say that right? but it's a 2B3 inhibitor. So what do you want to do, statin by itself or statin in a 2B3 inhibitor? She's going to the cath lab. Why? Is because I believe if we calculate everything here, she's going to have a very high, uh-oh, I didn't mention it, Timmy risk score. You know, she's on aspirin, bumping troponin. She has a high Timmy risk score. She's going to the cath lab with only one antiplatelet, I think I'm kind of bulleting into picking what? B. Let's see what the right answer is. All right. So on patients with only one antiplatelet, going to the cath lab is look at her Timmy risk score. I mean, that's six. That's huge. And I already listed a lot of the Timmy risk score over here. These patients probably would benefit from 2B3 inhibitor. If she was on dual antiplatelet therapy up front, no, you wouldn't do the 2B3. And this is the Timmy risk score. I know you can get this off Google, but I mean, there are seven parts of the score, historical, age, risk factors for CAD, known CAD, aspirin use, presentation, you know, how long was the angina, cardiac markers. She had a lot of this. And I mentioned the GRACE score, and it's just not as practical, you know. And let's just read the box over here. In patients with an N-STEMI unstable angina, and that's part of the acute coronary syndrome, an ischemia-guided approach based on stress testing is appropriate for patients who are at low risk based on clinical risk score. So what do we say is that if you do a Timmy risk score or a GRACE score and those are low, then you need to do some stress testing to figure out if they're positive on the stress test, goes to the cath lab, not positive on the stress test, medical management. Good. And these two, the GRACE and Timmy scores, are the most popular and validated in regards to ACS. 
All right, super bonus. 64-year-old man is evaluating the ER for chest pain. He describes the chest pain as pressure located in the mid-chest that is non-radiating and not associated with any symptoms. The chest pain began at rest and has lasted approximately 15 minutes. He reports no history of similar chest pain. Medical history is remarkable for hypertension, type 2 diabetes, hyperlipidemia, asthma, and a 20-pack year history of smoking, for which he quit two years ago. Meds are hydrochlorothiazide, metformin, statin, long-acting oral nitrate, albuterol, miasma, and an uh, inhaled corticosteroid. So probably I would call it a mild persistent asthma. All right. Patient admits the difficulty in adhering to his medical regimen, so he's non-compliant. On exam, he's normal tense of non-tacky, non-tachypnic, obese. Inspiratory and expiratory wheezing are heard bilaterally. Well, he's not compliant to his asthma meds. A normal carotid upstroke without bruise is noted. JPP is normal. Normal S1 and S2 are heard without murmurs. Distal pulses are normal, no peripheral edema. Labs, including biomarkers, are within normal limits. EKG shows normal sinus rhythm with, uh-oh, T-wave inversion, bolded red, leads two through V6. So, of course, you know, when we talk about the evolution on an EKG in regards to a STEMI, you know, probably one of the first things you may see are T-wave inversions. You don't catch it right away, but they caught it. So we're going to treat this one as what? Acute coronary syndrome. So they decided to give this person some aspirin, clopidogrel, and probably, and some low molecular weight heparin. All right. So far, I'm, I'm liking what they gave. Which of the following medications should be added to his regimen? So I would say this much. So for the T-wave inversion, they're probably going to say not the elevation. They're probably thinking maybe more of a, uh, a unstable slash end STEMI because I don't see revascularization over here. And definitely when they give the heparin, that's definitely going to be true for unstable and um, end STEMI. So what do they want us to do? What are we going to add? So there's beta blocker, calcium channel blocker, beta blocker, calcium channel blocker. That's a weird choice. All right. So... In ACS, what did I say? That there are three meds that always need to be given down below. We need to evaluate for beta blockers, statins, and ACE inhibitors. ACE inhibitors more for STEMI, maybe just to mention that. I don't see statins anywhere. So it's basically, we're talking about meds that control the heart rate. So I'm inclined to give carbidolol or metoprolol, but you know what? Those are probably the wrong answer because this guy's wheezing from his asthma. He's actively wheezing. And I think that's the big thing because he's actively wheezing. And I think the whole point is, even though these are cardioselective, I mean, why take the risk? You know what I mean? So we probably want to use a calcium channel blocker in these cases. So this is kind of a tricky one. I think it comes down to, do you know the two broad categories of calcium channel blockers, which are dihydroperidines and non-dihydroperidines? And which one would you use to control the heart rate? the non-dihydros. So which one is that? Dotiazem. That's going to be cardizem. The fedipine is, uh, I believe it's Procardia is the brand name, and it's more for blood pressure control. So I would pick B, and you know what's the take-home message here? Is guidelines. Is that when we talk about controlling the heart rate, there's no ifs, ands, or buts. It's beta blockers first. We said that. But if there's any contraindications, 
the first line thing we use if we can't use beta blockers is what? Calcium channel blockers. So things like diltiazem will control the heart rate and it also does have some anti-inginal properties to it. So I'm definitely okay with that. Super bonus. 56-year-old man is admitted to the hospital with a new onset of substernal chest pressure. Medical history is remarkable for hyperlipidemia. He is a cigarette smoker. Meds are aspirin, statin. Upon admission to the hospital, he began receiving a beta blocker, um, clopidogrel, and intravenous heparin. All right, I'm buying this already. On exam, he's normal tensive, non-tacky, non-tachypnic. No JVD is noted. Lungs are clear to auscultation. No murmurs or gallop is heard. And there's no peripheral edema. On admission, his troponin was slightly elevated. On hospital day two, it definitely goes up to 8.4. EKG on arrival to the ER demonstrated nonspecific STT wave abnormalities, but no ST elevation or depression. So this is going to be what? end stemming. So cardiac catheterization demonstrates, so he probably had a high Timmy risk or grace score. Uh, demonstrates an overall preserved LB systolic function, uh-oh, with diffuse disease in the distal portions of all three major epicardial vessels. So triple vessel disease, but it was very distal. And because of that, they couldn't pop the stent. All right, so where are we going with this? Which of the following is the most appropriate management of this patient's clopidogrel therapy? So they gave dual antiplatelet therapy up front, but they did not pop the stent in ACS. What do you do? Um, so what I would do is probably take out kind of the crazy stuff, right? Uh, would you stop the clopidogrel, the dual antiplatelet therapy right away? I mean, that seems a little aggressive, so that's no. Would you continue it just forever? Well, probably not. I think it comes down to B and C, right? You know, they didn't pop the stent, but you know what the answer is here? It's going to be C. So that is one of my major teaching points. When someone comes in with acute coronary syndrome, whether you pop the stent or not, you're going to be on dual antiplatelet therapy for how long? One year. And which one are you probably going to use? The one that's studied the most, which is what? So unstable, NSTEMI, medically treated, no stent, one year. We think about clopidogrel. Question. 56-year-old man is admitted to the CCU with recent onset of substernal chest discomfort and dyspnea. Upon admission, he was given, ooh, probably had good insurance. Aspirin, got Tigralore. Look at him, big baller. Beta blocker and low molecular weight heparin. He has hyperlipidemia. Regular meds are low-dose aspirin and a statin. On exam, he's afebrile, normal tensive, non-tacky. Cardiac and pulmonary exam are normal, as is the remainder of the examination. Serum troponin levels are elevated, so he definitely ends stemming for sure. <laughs> um, EKG, normal sinus, heart rate of 80. There are nonspecific ST wave abnormalities, but no ST elevation or depression. But I think given some of his findings, they decided high Timmy, high grace score, we're going to the cath lab. And they found out a, a good LV systolic function and two vessel. So that's cool. They decided to stent because it was only two vessel disease and I don't see anywhere a history of diabetes. Okay, so they did a stent in the LAD and the proximal RCA and they put drug eluting stents. So everything sounds pretty good. 
you know, what, what's the question? Oh, okay. In addition to continuing aspirin, which you should, what should we do with the tiger lore? Okay, so let's go through our thing. ACS, stent, drug eluding. I, oh, why is this Why is this hard? Oh my God, I mean, I gotta take this now, it's too easy. So are you gonna continue the tiger lore for 30 days? No. Are you gonna continue the tiger lore forever? No. Should you just say, you know what? I'm gonna switch you to clopidogrel because tiger lore is making too much money? No. But the answer is, do antiplatelet therapy for how long? One year. And you got a what? Stent and tiger lore compared to clopidogrel had better mortality data and ACS in those who got stented. So I love this one. And I put the advertisement that they put out for this drug. I think this drug is from AstraZeneca. And give tiger lore because I want to be there. I love it. I'm, I'm kind of tearing up a little bit over here, you know? All right. So here's going to be my wording of the answer of everything I just told you folks so you could read it. Oh, look at me going beyond the pearls. So I think many of you, when you did your cardiology rotations, you've heard about this article. Uh, many cardiologists will kind of force you to read it. And the question becomes, well, if 12 months is good for dual antiplatelet therapy after ACS, let's go for 30 months. Let's go for three years. And they did that study over there. And what did it show? I'm just going to do some reading. Dual antiplatelet therapy beyond one year. After placement of a drug-eluting stent, this is what the question is, as compared to aspirin alone, significantly reduced the risk of stent thrombosis, well, I'm happy, in major cardiovascular uh, events and strokes, but there's always a but, isn't there? It was associated with an increased risk of bleeding. So for most patients, we recommend aspirin, 81 milligrams, plus clopidogrel, 75 milligrams daily for one year and continued dual antiplatelet therapy for you know, at least an additional 18 months in some people who can tolerate it, some people who can tolerate it, but the answer is we do one year because there is an increased risk of bleeding in these patients. Super bonus, 70 year old woman is hospitalized for an ST elevation MI. So how do we evaluate a STEMI? Her symptoms began three days ago prior to admission. The pain resolved spontaneously before reaching the hospital. Two hours after presentation to the ED, she develops acute onset of shortness of breath, hypotension, oh, and is tubed. So this is sad. She had the, the STEMI three days ago. Now she's back, and now she's short of breath and tubed. A portable chest x-ray shows cardiomegaly and pulmonary edema. Dopamine is initiated to support her blood pressure. On exam, she's hypotensive, tacky, Respiratory, it's 12. She has a harsh four out of six polo systolic murmur at the right and left external borders associated with a palpable thrill. So you're touching, you can feel it. No S3 or S4 is heard, and there are crackles in the lungs bilaterally. She's probably fluid overloaded, if anything. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? So before you guys jump into this, what is this question asking? These are going to be the complications after an MI. So I think most of you know where I'm going with this. After an MI, I put the complications in three time zones. I guess I could use that word. There are going to be complications that happen right after an MI. Most of those complications that happen hours after an MI are going to be what? 
arrhythmias. What arrhythmias? Well, kind of all of them, right? If it happens days after MI, these are going to be the mechanical complications, such as a free wall rupture, such as a VSD, such as a, a severe mitral regurgitation from papillary, and you know, necrosis, and all these things, and infarction. And then there's going to be things that happen, you know, weeks afterwards. These are autoimmune, such as what, like a, a Dressler's syndrome. So. I really think with the three days, the way she's presenting, this is gonna be the mechanical complications. So let's see my choices. So, you know, I think she had crackles and fluid overload and that murmur. So if you have a right ventricular infarction, are you gonna have wet lungs? The answer is not really. Because blood's not going where? Into the pulmonary artery. If you have a free wall rupture, well, you could just say it, say it. You'd be dead, <laughs> exactly. But it really wouldn't present with you know, fluid in the lungs, uh, and it really wouldn't have that type of murmur. And aortic dissection, that's not the findings we see with aortic dissection. I'm not saying you can have it, but, you know, if you're going to have this, what do they call it, holosystolic murmur, it's, you know, that's when the ventricle contracts and it's going through the ASD and going forward. Um, you're going to get more blood volume going into the, um, the pulmonary circulation. That definitely will give you volume overload. I think the answer is going to be what? D, VSD, ventral septal defect. That's what I'm going to stick with. The answer is D. So everything I just talked to you guys about is in here. So you can press pause and you can kind of read that. Let's do a couple more before I graduate you guys from acute coronary syndrome and stable angina. Bonus, 66-year-old man is evaluated in the ER for left-sided chest pain that began at rest. Lasted around 15 minutes and has since resolved. A similar episode occurred at rest yesterday and multiple similar episodes uh, that were associated with exertion have occurred over the past two weeks. Hypertension and diabetes for past medical history. Father went under cabbage at age 69. Brother had cabbage kind of early at age 54. This patient's meds are calcium channel blocker, so funny area for the diabetes, that needs to be changed, <laughs> and aspirin. On exam, normal tens of non-tech, you know, CVP is six. There is no cardiac murmurs, lung fields are clear. Extremities show no edema, peripheral pulses are normal. Troponin is slightly elevated, creatinine's one four. EKG shows one millimeter ST depression in the lateral leads, because that's VL, uh, AVL, V5, V6, all we need is lead one. So um, definitely it sounds like an unstable angina type patient. Chest x-ray was normal cardiac silhouette, no infiltrates or effusions. So, all right, so they gave some aspirin, sounds good. IV nitroglycerin, unfractured heparin, they heparinized them, beta blocker, statin. So I have no problems with this patient so far. Okay, which of the following should be the next step in the management of this patient? All right. Um, which ones would, 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 uh, would I take off? Are you going to stress test this patient right now, a full farm colical stress test? I don't think so. I think the person just had unstable angina. It's kind of mean to do that. I wouldn't do that just yet. Um, are you going to push a lytic? Not for unstable angina, not for an end STEMI, only for, for ST elevation. So C and D are done. Uh, brain natriuretic peptide mean... I, this is for an evalu it's not for an evaluation of CHF. I wouldn't do that next. And 
with a CBP of six, I mean, you're really going to have to like twist my arm to say he's fluid overloaded because that CBP is pretty much normal. You know what? This is a reminder of everyone. I did this purposely is to please always, always calculate the what? Timmy risk score. Patient needs to go where? Cath lab. Answer is going to be what? A. All right. I think this could be the last one, but don't quote me because then you're going to be mad at me and I don't want people angry. A uh, 30-year-old man is evaluated in the ER for dull substernal chest pressure uh, for one hour duration. Um, patient was having diaphoresis, nausea, palpitations, dyspnea. Patient began, the pain began approximately six hours ago after, oh, after inhaling cocaine. There you go. Big fan of the cocaine. Uh, he is a cigarette smoker with a 12-pack year history. There is no history of premature coronary artery disease. In his family, he has no other medical problems and takes no meds. On exam, his blood pressure is 154 over 88, heart rate of 95, respiratory rate of 20. BMI is 23. Cardiac exam has a normal heart sounds and a grade one ounce systolic ejection murmur. EKG shows sinus tachycardia without ST segment or T-wave abnormalities which of the following is the most appropriate management for my cocaine snorting friend. All right, and you know they're always gonna have this cocaine question on the boards. Um, you know, speaking of cocaine, um, has anyone out there seen this Netflix show called Narcos? If you have, that is one of Dr. Raj's favorite Netflix things to watch. So anyways, little side note, we'll go back to education. I know that's what you want. All right, so which one would I definitely not pick? Because if you do, that lawyer is gonna come through the door. The answer is C, beta blocker. Because if you beta block, when someone's enjoying their cocaine, you're gonna get unopposed what? Alpha, they're gonna go into hypertensive crisis and you will be talking to the lawyer. Um, this patient need to go to the cath lab. I hope not because this is from cocaine. Does this patient need to be anticoagulated? I hope not. This is from what? Cocaine. The, te the teaching here is going to be how do we treat patients who do cocaine? Of course, addiction, medicine, and blah, blah, blah. But we give things for vasospasm, calcium channel blockers, and nitrates. And also, there's going to be a role for what? Um, benzodiazepines. So I wanted to mention that too. The answer here is going to be what? D. All right. Let's see if I was telling the truth. I was, look at us. So we did acute coronary syndromes. We talked about stable angina. We talked about a lot of stuff. So we're kind of nearing the end. So we're gonna talk about CHF and that's gonna be a huge talk, probably an hour if not a little bit longer. Then we're gonna close off talking about valvular heart disease. I think this is a perfect time to take a little breather. So let me stop right here, catch up on your notes and I'll see you soon.